On August 30th, 2023, KEI hosted a discussion with Professor Rory Metcalf on South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy and middle power convergence with Australia. Over the past decade, the concept of the Indo-Pacific has replaced the late 20th century Asia-Pacific as a central frame of reference for strategy and external policy. Although the Indo-Pacific is often associated particularly with Japan and its influential Prime Minister, the late Abe Shinzo, in fact, Australia was the first country to formally recognize the Indo-Pacific as its regional security environment. As a fellow middle power and independent-minded U.S. ally with its own geopolitical complexities to navigate, Australia provides an illuminating example for South Korea as it operationalizes its Indo-Pacific strategy. Welcome and good evening, everybody who's joining us here in the U.S. And uh, good early morning for anyone joining us from Australia or anywhere else uh, in the world. And we're very pleased to have you at our virtual program. Um, today's program, this evening's program, focuses on Korea-Australia relations in the Indo-Pacific and how the two uh, may cooperate in the region. And it's based on a paper by Professor Rory Medcalf who's head of the National Security College at the Australian National University. I'm not gonna go over Rory's entire bio, which we will link to on our website, but I will note uh, that he has three decades of experience across diplomacy, intelligence analysis, think tanks, academia, and journalism, including as the founding director of the International Security Program at the Lowy Institute from 2007 to 2015, where if I'm not mistaken, he remains a non-resident fellow. Uh, Professor Medcalf has been very prominent in developing Australia's relations with India. He's also been recognized as a thought leader internationally for his work on the Indo-Pacific concept, uh, as articulated in his 2020 book, Contest for the Indo-Pacific, which was released internationally under the title Indo-Pacific Empire. And among many other activities, uh, he's provided expert advice and research for the Australian government for their defense white paper, as well as for the Australian Defense Department's Indo-Pacific strategy. So we are very pleased and fortunate to have him here today uh, to discuss uh, Australia uh, ROK relations. Before I do turn to Rory, I just wanna briefly contextualize our event um, and the larger project of which it's a part. His paper will be featured in volume two of KEI's new flagship journal, Korea Policy, under the title, Defining the Indo-Pacific, A Region of Diverse Visions. The volume consists of two sections, the first of which includes articles on the US, Japan, South Korea, ASEAN, and Chinese views of the Indo-Pacific concept, and the second section, which will offer more Korea-focused analysis, and will consist of three papers, including Rory's paper, a paper by Scott Snyder, which focuses on the US, ROK, and North Korea strategic triangle, uh, a program about which we presented about a week and a half ago, which you can find on our website, and also a paper by yours truly about uh, ongoing debates about the strategic flexibility of US forces on the Korean Peninsula um, and how, those, how that fits into a potential conflict over Taiwan. And the volume will be published in both uh, digital and print form in September. So for today's program, I've asked Rory if he could present for about 15 to 20 minutes on his paper, uh, after which I will uh, discuss with him a few questions which I've prepared, and then we'll turn to you, our virtual audience, for, for your Q&A. Um, I will say, uh, as Rory presents and as he and I discuss uh, some of the questions I've prepared afterwards, please feel free to put your questions in the YouTube chat function uh, and we will compile them and turn to them when uh, the Q&A begins. All right, well, without further ado, Rory, I want to pass things over to you. And, and uh, again, thank you for joining us at, at such an early hour. It's my pleasure. Uh, so thank you for the conversation and thanks, I think, for your work and um, that, that of your colleagues in your institution in, in, in really uh, commissioning such an important uh, set of research. My own view as someone who has worked for a very long time on the Indo-Pacific concept and, and who has helped, I believe, to uh, develop and socialise that in Australia and, and, and in the region, 
My view is that it, it's fantastic, uh, but it's also very significant that the Republic of Korea has formally articulated an Indo-Pacific strategy, that that strategy is reflected in the national security strategy released this year, that that strategy is reflected in quite a lot of diplomatic practice, and importantly, amplified in the uh, the really historic trilateral uh, summit recently at Camp David. My argument, uh, I guess my main argument in the paper, in the chapter, is that although in some ways the ROK is a bit late to the party on Indo-Pacific strategy, at the same time, it's actually quite an integral player. And I'll explain that for a few reasons in a moment. What I'm going to do uh, over the next 15 minutes or so is identify a few of the main arguments of my chapter, um, talk a bit about the Indo-Pacific concept, which is quite widely known, but not always comprehensively understood. Talk a little bit about how Australia made its journey to really embracing the Indo-Pacific as a foundation for strategic policy, for defence, for foreign affairs, even for geoeconomic engagement with the region, and then go back to the the really important Korea example. And I'll conclude on a few thoughts on how the bilateral relationship between Australia and the ROK really can be something of a core partnership of middle powers in this region. The Indo-Pacific is a concept that actually suits middle players uh, very well. So look, firstly, to recapitulate uh, some things many of us have heard before about the Indo-Pacific, but maybe we're too afraid to uh, to ask the uh, the hard questions about what is it. My own work suggests that we should look at the Indo-Pacific through a kind of uh, a, a dual lens. It's a duality. On the one hand, it is, I think, a useful and objective reframing of the regional system, uh, a large, really a mega regional system connecting the two oceans, the Indian and the Pacific Oceans, in ways that that, that really reflect uh, the, the realities of this era, the realities of economic con- connectivity, the realities of maritime trade routes uh, for trade, but also for for energy uh, as well, the realities of naval power projection, and in many ways, the the fact that that China, through its rise and its expanding influence and presence, has actually, if you like, um, made this Indo-Pacific idea quite inevitable. It is ironic that China is one of the countries that's more critical of Indo-Pacific terminology, but it's actually been in the past 30 years, the growth of connectivity across a region where Chinese economic growth and China's growing strategic footprint have been major factors that that is really making us talk about the Indo-Pacific in such a serious way. So at one level, the Indo-Pacific is an objective description of this region. And many of us who, if you like, grew up with the idea of the Asia-Pacific as the framing concept. And I think that was a perfectly valid framing concept for regional order from at least the late 1960s through to the early 1990s. And that's actually a long time ago, by the way. I mean, that's already a generation ago. That was already being replaced in the 1990s with the growing connectivity between the Pacific and the Indian Oceans. Um, the rise of not only the Chinese economy, but also if you look at other Asian, uh, East Asian and Southeast Asian economies and their connections with the region and the world, they were already beginning to carve the contours of an Indo-Pacific story. To be more precise, if you look at dependence on maritime trade, if you look dependence on particularly um, seaborne flows of resources and energy, um, you can make a case that China, Japan, the Republic of Korea, Taiwan, you know, a number of really pivotal economies in the region from the 1990s onwards were already, in fact, becoming dependent on an Indo-Pacific framework for their prosperity, but also for their security, because just as the resources and the energy flow across the sea lanes, so too can naval power projection disrupt 
that stability and bring about you know enormous risk to um, to nations and, and and economies. The Indo-Pacific, therefore, over the period from the 1990s through to I'd say uh, just a few years ago, was in a phase of evolution with a number of landmarks that helped us recognise the reality that was forming around us. Those landmarks included, uh, for example, China becoming a net uh, importer of oil in the early 1990s, the establishment of regional institutions that were larger than a narrow East Asian footprint, and ironically, the so-called East Asia Summit, uh, the ASEAN Regional Forum, the ASEAN Defence Ministers Meeting Plus, um, a lot of these inclusive regional institutions were already adopting an Indo-Pacific footprint, um, even if they weren't calling the region by that name. So, you know, most importantly, in my view, the East Asia Summit established 2005, driven significantly actually by Korean diplomatic activism. It's often forgotten that the study group and the vision group arising out of ASEAN plus three that led to the establishment of the EAS were driven by uh, some quite activist Korean administrations. Why are all these um, institutions Indo-Pacific? Well, um, among other things, they have India in them. They have Australia in them. And Australia, of course, is a two ocean power. And they recognise that what happens in the Indian Ocean cannot be separated from what happens in the Pacific. Just a few other landmarks on the journey towards the Indo-Pacific before I explain uh, Australia's position and then get to the um, the really important narrative about uh, the role of the Republic of Korea. The um, tsunami in 2004, uh, the Indian Ocean tsunami that led to the establishment of the Quad, the quadrilateral response by Australia, Japan, India and the United States, and that was the origin of you know, the very famous diplomatic quad arrangement today, a disaster relief response in very practical terms to a, to a terribly catastrophic event in the region. The piracy uh, in the Gulf of Aden in 2008 and the fact that when shipping was threatened for economies all around the world, it was in fact a wide range of Indo-Pacific powers that sent their navies to the Indian Ocean to show presence and protect uh, their interests. And in fact, uh, again, the Republic of Korea was a relatively early mover in sending serious force into the Indian Ocean uh, in 2008. Um, so these are sort of green shoots of Indo-Pacific policy that that connected with, um, with um, the Korean situation. The, um, the Belt and Road Initiatives, you know, China's efforts to build infrastructure uh, as a channel for power and influence from 2013 onwards. And of course, that was already happening, but the label Belt and Road or One Belt, One Road really gave that uh, a mega regional footprint. In a way, the Maritime Silk Road, the maritime component of that being uh, the Indo-Pacific with Chinese characteristics. And then all of the formal strategies and responses we began to see in the 2010s, um, over the past decade or so, that were in many ways a response to uh, concerns about Chinese efforts to project influence and dominate uh, the regional order. Um, so I'll come back to Australia, which actually was an earlier mover than most, but I'll focus for a moment on Japan and the United States, the, the Japanese so-called free and open Indo-Pacific strategy in 2016, launched in fact in Nairobi. So that gives you a sense of the enormous regional scope of these ambitions. The Trump administration's various attempts at Indo-Pacific strategy around 2017. And then of course, the Biden administration's refinement and maturing of a more comprehensive Indo-Pacific strategy subsequently. Um, ASEAN in 2019, developing an outlook on the Indo-Pacific, partly recognising that in a more competitive strategic environment, it was it was at risk of being sidelined by the, the Indo-Pacific outlooks of uh, major powers around it. Uh, the European Union uh, developing a formal Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, and India, um, 
particularly when President, uh, when, I'm sorry, when Prime Minister Modi addressed the Shangri-La Dialogue uh, in, in 2019 as well. So there's been this extraordinary tide of formal formalising the Indo-Pacific through strategic declarations and documents by uh, nations and institutions around the world. It reflects in many ways the realities of growing economic uh, and strategic connectivity between the Pacific and Indian Ocean theatres. There is a kind of um, a duality of that objective description that I mentioned at the start, an objective description of the region, but also a recognition that the Indo-Pacific can be a framework for balancing strategy. So if you like, that's the, um, you know, the second part of, 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 of the riddle, uh, an objective description, but also a framework for balancing. All of that occurring through an era where um, on these issues, there was, to my mind, perhaps a surprising uh, amount of caution, um, almost silence from Korean policymakers, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Australia, in all of this, playing a significant role. Uh, Australia was an early mover in formulating Indo-Pacific thinking. Uh, our defence white paper, as I point out in the um, in the chapter, our defence white paper in 2013 um, was the first, as far as I can tell, the first formal government strategy anywhere in the world to redefine the region comprehensively as the Indo-Pacific, to say that our region of strategic interest, where our interests are affected, is this two-ocean system. Um, it's the particularly the economic connectivity of that system that's driving this change. Um, so the rise of China, but also the rise of India, and projecting into the future how a global centre of gravity is essentially going to keep shifting to this region, as well as strategic risk. But in fact, although Australia was an early mover, um, Australia was cautious to begin with and actually has been quite cautious throughout in automatically privileging the idea of the Indo-Pacific as a framework for hard balancing of Chinese power for effectively almost, as some critics would claim, a kind of um, code for containment. Australian governments, even conservative Australian governments that were um, particularly strident in their rhetoric about China risk, um, were also emphasising that this needs to be a region of cooperation, a region of inclusivity, a region where uh, we can't just rely on hard power and where we need to build uh, the widest possible web of coalitions to dilute China's uh, coercive influence and to create the conditions whereby at some point China be could become a more constructive player in regional order. Now, why does all that matter? That matters uh, for this conversation today because in some ways I think the Australian experience provides a very useful uh, template for how uh, the Republic of Korea might approach the Indo-Pacific. So I'll turn now briefly to the um, the Korea experience and then wrap up with a few thoughts about cooperation with Australia uh, and others perhaps. So as I said, uh, the ROK was quite shy, quite cautious on coming to um, declare an Indo-Pacific strategy. And there are, in my view, at least two understandable reasons for that. Of course, uh, it goes without saying that South Korea has a unique strategic challenge. It has clearly the um, the constant problem of the um, the belligerence, the threats, uh, the risk that comes from North Korea, that comes from Pyongyang. And of course, at the same time, it has the complexity of you know effectively uh, being uh, a nation where it has its it has its threatening and estranged um, you know sibling um, across uh, the DMZ. So it's understandably a constant preoccupation of South Korean governments to ensure the stability and security of the Korean Peninsula and to try to chart a way for a politically durable future there. And that obviously sometimes brings what 
I guess critics would say is a a pretty narrow geographic focus to looking at uh, the nation's interests. But a lot of the other objective uh, realities speak in the other direction. So uh, if you look at data on dependence on the Indian Ocean for trade and energy, um, the Republic of Korea is consistently one of the most acutely dependent economies on the Indian Ocean in the world. Um, and there have been uh, indications in the past that 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 dependence was even more acute than the Chinese or Japanese dependence. If you look at proportions of um, a, of seaborne energy, for example, uh, that flow from the Middle East and Africa um, and from Australia, um, the ROK is hugely dependent. It depends on these sea lanes enormously for its prosperity, for the you know the great success story of South Korea as a trading and technology power over recent decades has again depended fundamentally on the security of the sea lanes, not only in East Asia, but across the Indo-Pacific. Um, in many ways, as a substantial middle power, and really more than a middle power in some ways, as um, South Korea takes its place on the world stage, there is a growing expectation that it will be a contributor to stability and security beyond its immediate neighbourhood, both unilaterally but also uh, in alliance and partnership frameworks bilaterally and minilaterally, and of course, taking its place in those big regional structures. Uh, and if you look at the the metrics of um, you know the scale of the Korean economy, um, military capability, including developing a navy that has serious blue water power projection capabilities, um, a reputation for uh, durable and effective development assistance, which is only growing at the moment, particularly in the South Pacific. And of course, now a role as a defence technology exporter as well. There are plenty of reasons why it makes sense for the ROK to take its place as a serious Indo-Pacific strategic partner. Against the backdrop of all of this, of course, the China factor looms large. And just as I said that the preoccupation, understandably, with North Korea is one factor that slowed down um, I think the Indo-Pacific journey of, of the ROK, a journey that was very cautious under uh, the previous administration, under the Moon administration, but has really accelerated now under uh, the, the Yun Suk-yeol administration. The caution about China, I think, um, did make policymakers in Seoul uh, reluctant even to use the term Indo-Pacific, which China found somewhat allergic, and reluctant to identify with really a hard balancing strategy, whether by the, the um, Trump administration or, or in a more comprehensive way by the Biden administration. A number of factors obviously have changed this, the change of administration in Seoul, I think the realisation among the population in the in much of the ROK that um, Chinese coercion is very much not in their interests and that building a web of partners is a very good idea. And so, you know, particular credit um, to the, uh, the administration for its position uh, that I think led fundamentally to the improved relationship bilaterally with Japan and trilaterally with the United States, because those, I think, along with a partner like Australia, will be pillars of a new Indo-Pacific strategy. I'll conclude on a few thoughts about what we can do together. So it's interesting that just as Australia has been a significant mover in encouraging Indo-Pacific frameworks with others, Australian governments themselves have been a little bit careful in the way they articulate this. So for example, yes, our defence and foreign policy white papers over the years have been very, very strong Indo-Pacific declaratory documents, emphasising the connectedness of the region, emphasising the need for coalition building across a wide regional canvas, including India, but also including partners in East Asia. But in fact, Australia doesn't have a particularly um, direct Indo-Pacific strategy that it states in public. You really have to kind of read a collection of Australian documents to um, reverse engineer what that, what that strategy looks like. Um, 
At the same time, Australia's shown, I think, a very healthy bipartisanship on Indo-Pacific policy. Uh, our first Indo-Pacific uh, visions were being articulated by Labor governments, by centre-left governments, at a time when we weren't sure whether China would turn out to be overwhelmingly a source of risk or potentially a partner. Um, conservative governments sharpened that approach, uh, particularly as we experienced a lot of Chinese coercion and interference over the past seven years. And now we have a Labor government again that's modifying the Indo-Pacific, but really sticking with those principles of solidarity, um, connectivity and balancing that I've been talking about. So that makes Australia, I think, incredibly ripe as a partner for the ROK. We've probably, in my view, underdone the relationship bilaterally over many years. And we can talk a bit about where the potential lies, whether it's in the economy or in defence cooperation or technology or critical minerals, it's actually all of the above mm. and more. But I think there is a new recognition at the moment in Canberra that we need to widen our web of really capable middle power partners who while they are allies of the United States, also have um, quite uh, an independent outlook on security. And the final point I'll make is that it is curious in a way that in Australia we've had bipartisanship on this, whereas in, um, in Seoul, unfortunately, in my view, it seems to be the case that um, there are pretty significant fluctuations when there's a change of administration from left to right, uh, to left again, to right again, um, you actually see the strategic policy settings changing significantly. And so I hope um, that one of the lessons Australia can deliver to our friends in Seoul is that the Indo-Pacific as a framework for both cooperation and balancing Chinese power should not be the preserve of any one side of the political spectrum. Uh, it's really about uh, the national interests uh, of our democracies. I will stop there and I really look forward to going into more depth with your questions. All right. Thank you very much, Roy. That was uh, a fantastic rundown. I really liked breaking the Indo-Pacific concept down in the two ways you did. One, as objective framework um, based on all the trends that led us from the Asia-Pacific framing to what we now refer to as the Indo-Pacific, but I think as you called them, the green shoots that, that ultimately led to formal Indo-Pacific strategies being enunciated and drawn up around the region, but also as a balancing framework. I didn't put this question on there, but it just comes to mind. And you made the differentiating between you, you differentiated between you know, sort of hard balancing vis-a-vis -vis China, but also um, uh, sort of a, a softer, sort of networked way to build relationships that's not in direct contention with China. Could could we also think about the Indo-Pacific strategy as a balancing framework, not just for Chinese power, but also in a broader sense? Um, if this makes sense. Um, it, I don't want to say necessarily against American power, but just being, but, but I guess for lack of, for lack of a, a, a more complex description, not balancing against America so much as um, balancing against having to choose between the two. I mean, I think about the ASEAN outlook, for example, it comes yeah. to mind most um, acutely, but. Uh... Look, I can try to address that. I would put it a bit differently. And I think if we were having this conversation during a Trump administration or a, an America first administration, um, I would say this quite forcefully, I think that is that critics of the Indo-Pacific sometimes make the mistake that, oh, this is all, you know, code for containment of China, code for hard balancing. It's some kind of American foisted, um, you know, uh, plot, mm. basically, sure, on sure. some innocent, suspecting, unsuspecting Asia. Um, you know, that's rubbish. And I think that view is, is is rubbish, and I think there's plenty of proof, plenty of evidence to show that it's rubbish, to show that there are all sorts of very um, organically, authentically regional, Asian, Australian, um, Indo-Pacific visions of the Indo-Pacific, and these have all kind of converged in a kind of a messy way that we're still working out, but there are many cross-currents cross there. And the important point of that is to note that um, it's 
it is partly, if I can be impolite about it, about um, socialising and civilising the United States as a regional actor just as much as it's about preventing Chinese hegemony um, because the United States has all sorts of interests and equities across the Indo-Pacific, but some of us on this side of the Pacific Ocean obviously <clears throat> have concerns <clears throat> sometimes that either the United States is going to not pay enough attention to the region or that if it does pay attention to the region, it's going to be overwhelmingly in a military and yeah. confrontational way. Pay the wrong, and pay the, the wrong kind of attention. Yeah, so there's all kinds of balances that need to be struck. And so during times when, um, as I think at the moment, the United States is attempting to look comprehensively at regional engagement, not just military, but thinking about development assistance, um, about technology, uh, about trade, although not sadly in the the free trading way that some of us would like, um, the Indo-Pacific is a great vehicle for dialogue and cooperation among many partners, and it actually gives coalitions of Asian partners um, and Australasian partners the opportunity to collectively speak back to America and say, this is the way we'd like you to engage in the region. You know, the Quad is actually a vehicle for that, just as it's a vehicle for balancing Chinese power. And when and if the United States is going through a more confrontational America first phase, mm. the Indo-Pacific provides, again, a way for us to build our own webs internally in the region and to be seeking to moderate the US position. And so, you know, I could easily see opportunities for building and strengthening um, trilaterals and minilaterals that don't include the United States under an Indo-Pacific rubric, partly as a way to demonstrate that we can do more for ourselves in this region and to build a bit of insurance um, against the the problems America sometimes goes through, but also as a way to help demonstrate to the US that we're not free riding, and therefore it makes sense for the US to um, to to invest more in this region. So I think that's a really thoughtful point, um, and we should, you know, perhaps on another occasion tease it out a bit more uh, because it'd be great to know what um, friends in ASEAN like Indonesia uh, think on this. Well, I would I would alert our viewers to to read the wonderful paper that covers exactly that that uh, view in uh, in Korea policy. Um, I can't speak for my fellow American citizens, but I take no umbrage at your suggestion that we should be socialized and civilized <laughs> to uh, the uh, complexities of the region. Um, I also want to give credit to Gil Rosman, who's a time editor of our of KEI's uh, publications, professor emeritus at Princeton University with whom I uh, collaborated on some of these questions I wanted to pose you. Uh, and I'll start with the first one that I, that I had sent you, and you sort of ended on this, which is, you've suggested, of course, that Australia and, and South Korea would be natural and, and good partners. And the question that Gil asked, and, and I agree, is, are, are they ideal partners and, and why? And you mentioned some of the areas where they might be. Could you maybe tease some of those out? So look, I, I hesitate to say ideal because I think there's probably no such thing sure. as ideal partners. There's always going to be complexities in the partnership, but I think we are, um, you know, distinctly well suited for one another in many ways. Um, so there's a um, there's a desire in both countries, really, in the the policy elites, and probably in the um, the broader community and the business community and other parts of the community to to um, you know, demonstrate uh, a high degree of autonomy and independence as a power, while also ensuring that we preserve um, you know the best elements of the deterrence uh, umbrella and the best elements of the U.S. alliance system. And whereas some partners are clearly so. So some partners and allies, you know, I mean, for example, the Philippines uh, on the one hand, or perhaps Japan on on the other hand, um, either have so little or so much um, that they can automatically bring to the table in the in the alliance. And I should add that I think the Philippines is 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 rapidly improving what it brings to the table. But for many years, the United States obviously saw the Philippines as a country where it frankly, wasn't going to bring much strategic weight 
to the table, the US had to do the heavy lifting. The difference with Australia and the ROK is that we both, you know, we both provide a substantial amount of capability, but neither of us really um, has that, um, if you like, that claim to major power status. And I frankly think that um, the ROK has more potential than Australia in that regard. You know, we are true middle powers in in many senses of the word. We also have pretty sophisticated internal debates about some of these issues. And I think one of the differences, as I've said, is that Australia has a more, has greater bipartisanship in the politics, but in the broader spectrum of public debate, um, you know, we have pretty hot democratic conversations about all of these questions. How do we balance Chinese power? How do we ensure our economic prosperity and not, uh, if you like, gratuitously, gratuitously provoke or alienate China? How do we um, make the most of the US alliance while embedding it in a multilateral order? Uh, and finally, on the economic front, you know, there's extraordinary and obvious complementarity. Um, and in many ways, just as I think the, you know, the Japan-Australia relationship has been so important for both Japan and Australia, so too, I think we're at an earlier stage of a really comprehensive, in the best sense, Australia career geoeconomic relationship and so it's not only trade um you know volumes of trade uh, resource australian resources particularly to korea and, and and essentially technology imports for us but also an economic relationship that now provides us with national resilience against future shocks um, and that provides us with if you like um an alternative to some of the other options out there so i can see growing dependence in Australia on uh, Korean um, technology, growing potential for technology cooperation. Australia has an excellent research sector, but clearly not the scale um, for an enormous amount of high-end manufacturing in this country. Australia is a globally um, influential or can be a globally influential um, provider of fairly much any of the raw materials uh, that Korea needs for its development, uh, for its further development. And I think particularly critical minerals, yeah. rare earths, um, battery supply chains, that's where we're going to look to each other to build much greater resilience and, and diversification. So it's a pretty bright future if we want to uh, invest in it, in my view, and it would actually be good for regional resilience as well because it means that each of our countries can therefore um, protect their own independence from China's coercion and therefore be a bit more bold and forthright uh, as partners in protecting um, really uh, the global and regional commons. This this brings to mind uh, another question again, which I didn't explicitly send and prepare to you. But to, to what do you think, or to be more specific, do you think that the the bilateral alliances that they have with the U.S. constrain their effort to to lean in that direction? Not necessarily. In fact, in fact. Overwhelmingly, my answer would be no, mm-hmm. provided that we're not um, acting in a kind of helpless, dependent way upon those alliances. And let fa- let's face it, you know, American friends would not want that, uh, and it would make the alliances less sustainable and less durable. So, in a way, the more that we can use the alliances to develop our own credible capabilities, and of course, in Australia, the um, our defence posture is heavily reliant on the US alliance and in some ways becoming more so under the um, the AUKUS framework. But that also means that we have access to leading technology, access to leading intelligence, um, access to being interoperable with the United States. And that means that in turn, we have a kind of uh, a shortcut to working more closely with other US, high-end US allies in the region. and so. Provided we can demonstrate in our relations with one another, Canberra and Seoul, that you know we are both uh, seasoned alliance managers, mm-hmm. and that we can even, frankly, share notes with one, one another on some of the the you know the opportunities and challenges that that brings. I don't see the alliances as a constraint on good bilateral uh, security relations between Australia and the ROK, and I would add 
that we should be bold and experimenting with some of the trilateral dialogues we can have. I mean, why not uh, an Australia ROK Japan strategic conversation? Why not a strategic conversation of Australia, the ROK, and one or two of our friends in Southeast Asia, because in fact, we have you know, incredibly shared interests in the peace and stability and international access to the South China Sea. And in some ways, and I haven't kind of made this point yet, but it really is significant. In some ways, um, South Korea can be a more attractive partner in capacity building uh, in Southeast Asia and the Pacific than um, the United States mm. or even than Australia because I think in some ways we are identified by some in the region as an even closer US ally and it could well be that's because Australia is, you know, is not strictly speaking an Asian country, um, South Korea is. So I think there are um, great opportunities to have both uh, alliance and a significant degree of, of shared independent maneuver. I, I'm gonna ask one more question that I wanna to open to our audience. Um, and, and you already alluded to it, but other trilateral relationships, obviously we've been discussing in, in, in DC, the, the ROK, Japan, US trilateral relationship for, for, for obvious reasons mm -hmm. given Camp David, but um, could you talk a little bit about the ROC, Japan, Australia trilateral? And how, how might Australia's involvement in that help mitigate the, the constant undulations between Tokyo and Seoul for reasons uh, that we're all familiar with? Yeah. Look, that's a really um, useful question and um, no easy answer. Look, you know, full disclosure here, I am an analyst and a, a policy um, advocate who has spent a lot of time on the relationship with Japan, Australia's relationship with Japan over many years. Um, I see that as incredibly value, valuable, uh, have invested heavily in it. And, uh, you know, if you like, understand some of the Japanese perspectives on on um, on their security uh, and their, their anxieties about the region. And it's a fantastic story of Australia-Japan cooperation. I've always hoped to see greater um, Japan Korea cooperation and ideally greater Japan Korea Australia cooperation and have you know like a lot of uh, analysts and observers have sometimes found it frustrating that we've moved so slowly and fitfully in that regard um, you know for, for as you say for obvious reasons I think that um, Australia can provide a kind of extra ballast of building trust and dialogue and and and, and hard cooperation I don't you know, I think the United States obviously plays that uh, role most importantly between Tokyo and Seoul, but Australia can do it too. And we can approach it from a different angle. We can be very focused on interests. We can be very focused on this region and we can be very focused particularly on some of the, the parallels between the Australia-Japan and the Australia-Korea relations. Uh, because, you know, from an Australian perspective, um, Australia being a trusted geoeconomic partner to Japan and Australia being a trusted geoeconomic partner to South Korea are absolutely um, complementary parallel activities. In fact, not, not only parallel, but convergent activities. You know, we want, we, we see mutual benefit in those relationships occurring. Um, if we look at the capabilities in the region, if, as I've mentioned already, the significant and growing capability of South Korea as a blue water naval partner, but also as a partner that is constantly dealing with the tensions and challenges of the Korean Peninsula and increasingly um, standing up for its own interests with regard to China, of course, we would want to engage more and share experience. And in some ways, um, that can also then help us in our relation, our own relationship with Japan. So I, I guess the one, just to close that point, I would not make the argument that somehow this is all about Australia um, heroically helping our sure. friends in North Asia get along with each other. It's also good for us. And in many ways, um, seeing a much more joined up um, ROK Japan 
set of capabilities, whether it's in maritime security, whether it's in cyber security, whether it's in supply chain security, um, is uh, incredibly good for Australia's future in um, in, in the Indo-Pacific. So really, I think that, that door is wide open. Thank you. So I want to I turn to uh, my colleague, Sang, uh, who's been Who's been who's been putting together some of the questions posed online, and uh, she will she will uh, that's whose voice you'll hear, disembodied though it is. All right. Uh, so this is from YouTube. I think we touched upon this a little bit, but the question was: uh, It seems that Australia is pursuing an institutional, soft, and economic power to rebalance the Indo-Pacific region. Would this require not just uh, partnership, but also new alliances? Great. Do you want me to answer that one right away? Sure. Yeah. So that's a good way of looking at it. I think if you look at, particularly in the last few years under the new Australian government, the last year or two now, um, there has been a greater emphasis on development assistance, greater emphasis on um, sort of comprehensive economic engagement with the region, particularly with Southeast Asia. But below the surface of that, there is still real balancing going on. Um, and this is about it's not just about protecting our interests it's about ensuring that partners in the region especially in southeast asia and the pacific have greater ability to protect their own sovereignty that they're more capable in themselves because if they can protect their sovereignty particularly from chinese coercion um, it reduces the risks of china dominating the region and it preserves our own sovereignty and freedom of maneuver uh, and 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 careers as well by, by the way um I don't think the word alliance is quite the right um, concept to bring in here. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit old-fashioned in the way I understand alliances. I always think of treaties and obligations. And so in the geoeconomic space, um, there's all sorts of things we can do that are based on trust and mutual benefit. But an alliance, to my mind, would only come into play if it required some kind of obligation, for example, to help one another if there was an act of economic coercion against one of our member. I think it's a great idea, by the way, to have effectively a, um, a geoeconomic geo equivalent of, 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 a, of a military alliance, but that's going to be very hard work. We don't need to go there yet. We just need to be building these trusted partnerships. And so the more that Australia and Korea can work in parallel but coordinating and communicating with one another about how are we building the resilience in Southeast Asia, how are we building the resilience in the South Pacific, and making sure that we're not duplicating, that we're actually, for example, in things like um, education, in areas like um, technology transfer, in areas like sharing data. Um, so, you know, for example, data on maritime security, uh, in areas like ideally building cyber security literate workforces across the region. Uh, between us, we can do a lot. It doesn't need to be um, kind of a, a treaty or an alliance that might require, frankly, too much political will than we can muster. Mm. All right. Do we have another question from the audience? So another question is, so there has been discussion on expanding the nuclear consulting group beyond just U.S. and South Korea. And today, House of Commons recommended inviting South Korea and Japan to AUKUS plus two. Is there potential for new security structures in the region, particularly related to nuclear structures? I, I figured that question was coming. I was going to ask it, but I figured someone would. Look, I think we can move a bit cautiously on those things. Um, you know, I'm a bit of an enthusiast for minilateralism. I was a very early advocate of the Quad um, before it was sort of fashionable. Um, I've been an advocate of a number of trilaterals, some of which have been successful, others less so. But I do think there's a risk of a bit of institution building fatigue. I mean, we all have governments and foreign ministries that are very stretched in doing all the things they're doing already. And so I think it's better to do a small number of things at the moment and consolidate them before we build the next structures. Um, so in Australia's case, AUKUS, Australia, United Kingdom, United States, not an alliance, by the way, not even a pact, but really a technology sharing arrangement. So really important to emphasize what AUKUS really is. And that's, that's really about building a stronger Australia, particularly through nuclear powered submarines, but also through better access to and sharing of critical technologies. 
You don't need to magically one day say there is fourth and fifth member of AUKUS, just as you don't need to automatically expand the quad. And just as, you know, in the case of um, whether it's Korea in the US or, or Japan in the US, you know, you have very clear uh, deterrence consultations that um, that take place. You don't need to formally expand those to suddenly bring another member through the door. Mm. All you need to do is in an ad hoc, flexible way, maximise the coordination and consultation between and across these structures. So, you know, I think the most obvious example I can think of is that under AUKUS, there's a not so well-known um, fact that the non-nuclear elements of AUKUS, that is the so-called pillar two of critical technologies, cybersecurity, quantum, um, hypersonics, a lot of the areas of really promising research that we're, the three countries are doing together, the door is open in principle to bring in additional countries on those projects. So a trusted partner with capability, um, with will, with convergent interests, and obviously um, South Korea fits that fits that definition, could cooperate with AUKUS quite closely on particular projects without being a fully-fledged member, and that would be politically much easier than imagining, you know, yet another grand AUKUS. Um, and I'm not even going to think about the acronyms that um, <laughs> AUKUS would have Japan and the ROK in it, but um, we don't need to go there. Sure. Um I, I just quickly, editorial note, I'm, I'm happy that you continue to elucidate that or, or highlight that the word alliance and what it does and doesn't mean. It gets tossed around so often these days. Um, it's, it, you know, I agree with your definition, treaty-based, obligation-based. Domestic parliaments or legislatures have passed and approved. So there's a stickiness yeah. to that. I think sometimes the press uses that term too um, uh, liberally. Um, do we have another question? Okay, so this question is asking about the economic structures in the in the Pacific. Australia is notably a ratified member of CPTPP, while South Korea and United States are not. So, what are the opportunities and challenges there? Well, you know, firstly, cards on the table. Um, not only am I a fan of um, of, of the um, uh, CPTPP, but you know, I still kind of wish. Uh, that the TPP had lived up to its original promise. I mean, I remember when when um, the Obama administration introduced the TPP long ago, at first I thought it was an unrealistic ambition. Then I began to realise that, in fact, um, the US cannot and its allies cannot effectively um, constrain and balance Chinese power in a way that respects the rights and sovereignties of others unless there is a very strong economic dimension, including trade. And, you know, the freer the US trading arrangements with partners in this region, um, the, the more effectively we can, we can kind of win that battle. So Australia has remained a little bit of a, I guess, a loyalist to, you know, the original purposes and intent of the TPP. And of course, Australia, Australian Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was instrumental, along with Japanese Prime Minister Abe actually in um, salvaging the CPTPP. We have to be realistic, however, and being realistic, you know, the ground, the ground has moved, the political ground has moved beneath our feet, particularly in the United States. We're not going back in a hurry to uncontested um, anything, anything like uncontested political support or anything approaching consensus on. On free trade, so instead, really, we have to be more selective. And I think those areas where we can continue to maximise liberalisation uh, between at least uh, trusted economic partners, uh, the better. And I think again, Australia, ROK, US, all and Japan are all pretty instrumental in demonstrating to partners in Southeast Asia, uh, so I'd point at countries like Vietnam, for example, uh, where their growth is profoundly in our interest because their growth will uh, help shift the strategic balance away from it being dominated uh, by China. 
we, we have to at least find selective ways to, uh, even at the term of some short-term economic sacrifices ourselves, help them to um, continue on their path. I think that's, we have no more online. I'm going to, we have no more online questions. So I'm going to pose another one of my own and it, it builds on um, some of the previous discussion around AUKUS, which for various reasons we don't need to get into, I understand is having in some ways a tough time getting stood up, very sensitive technology and information sharing that is um, not everyone is readily uh, um, sort of unlocking or sharing, but there's a distance, there's a gap, a transition between where Australia currently stands with its submarine capabilities and then whenever what AUKUS promises comes online 10, 12, 15 years from now, it's my understanding that South Korea has offered or at least floated the idea of helping helping provide uh, subs to Australia to help um, essentially cross that bridge between their retiring certain current ones and before the new ones come online. Is that is that in fact the case? Is that potential real and, and where might that go? Look, I if we were having this conversation a number of years ago, um, I would have happily entertain the idea of of effectively a um one of a number of conventional capability gap fillers from regional partners and so you know if you if you wind back to 2016 2015 2014 uh we were originally looking at japan um as providing uh conventional submarine capabilities to australia at probably what would have been very good cost i can imagine that um you know in principle, uh, South Korea would have been a contender if we were looking now for a stopgap conventional submarine capability, and and of course others, you know, the Germans and others would also be mm. in that um, in that survey of, of possibility. I don't think it's going to happen, and I don't think it needs to happen anymore, because some of us were some of us AUKUS observers and sometime AUKUS skeptics were I think pleasantly surprised at the um you know the agreement in principle that Australia would receive Virginia class submarines under a lease arrangement from the United States this year. You know, that itself is a breakthrough. And although now, as you rightly say, uh, there's an enormous amount of work still to be done in um in getting all of the political and administrative players fully lined up. Um, I think we'll get there. I think that the um, you know I think there's a reasonable degree of confidence that the leasing arrangement of three to five Virginias will happen, mm. and if that happens, it actually does enough to fill the capability gap for Australia. Um, so I think we'll need to look for the you know the game changing um, Canberra Sol defence technology breakthroughs elsewhere, um, and there's a very large spectrum that that could cover. I, I certainly think that we need to um, get beyond the, the habits of parts of our defence establishment in, in the past where they automatically looked to American technology for the modernisation of our defence force. The pressure on Australia now is to acquire um, capability rapidly, um, focused on uh, really effectiveness rather on necessarily you know waiting for um, exquisite capabilities that have not yet been developed or designed mm -hmm. and so I think a you know completely open conversation with Seoul and the growing Korean defense industry on that you know for example on unmanned systems uh, is exactly the right way to go uh, but not, I don't think it'll be crude, um, you know, conventional submarines. Mm. Well, we schedule these these events for an hour, and of course, it's it's never sufficient to get to all the questions that come up for me, and I'm sure others watching. Um, but this has been more informative than I than I even hoped it would be, and I want to thank you again, Rory, for your your fantastic paper, which, as I mentioned, will run in Korea Policy in September, um, and I will also. Just alert our viewers to future programming for volume three of Korea policy, which is going to focus specifically on economic security as a concept. And much like the Indo-Pacific, how different countries approach 
uh, economic security and even define economic security in different and sometimes contested ways. So thank you again, Rory, for joining us, and we look forward to, to future collaboration. Thank you very much, Clinton. Can I just say two words as we close? One is to Please note do. that um, I should have mentioned that the Australian Defence Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles is proving a real champion of this bilateral relationship. So I think that's really worth keeping in mind. And secondly, I think just to, to emphasise the point of how much respect there is in the Australian people uh, for really the the achievements of uh, the Republic of Korea, and I think the um, you know the memories of what uh, if you like earlier generations did together in the Korean War um, are not forgotten here. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you, Rory. That's what I would have asked more about, but I'm happy you, I'm happy you closed with it. <laughs> well, thank you everyone for joining us, and, and Rory as well. Again. Thank you for listening. For more Korea content, keep an eye on our podcast feed.